work is when you're completely broken and and uh, in a place where he can fix you and reveal his truth to you. I grew up in the Mormon church, got many great experiences, many things that I'm so thankful and blessed by because of uh, my parents who raised me and taught me good principles, but uh, I found God's grace and mercy through the cross in February of 2008. Wow. And uh, my wife was not so excited about that. <laughs> uh, at the time, I was a seminary teacher, early morning seminary teacher in the Mormon church, and so um, very much a believer in that religion. And um, as a result of his leaving the church, our marriage of 22 years almost dissolved. And um, it was very devastating for both of us to be on out, and we never had been before. Mm. And uh, he continued to talk to me, and God continued to work in me. And uh, I'm hard-headed, so it took about four years after that for me to 2012. I, I was telling your daughter, actually, that um, it was Easter time, and I, I told him I hadn't been to church in four years, any church, anywhere. And um, I was telling Warren, I, I, you know, I, I just want to go to church. It's Easter. I just feel like I need to go somewhere because I always have been at Easter time, especially, and it was really important to me. And uh, we went to a little church back in Georgia, and from the minute we walked in the door, they were praying and praising, praising God and mm. singing about him and just preaching the word. and. Uh, the tears began to flow and I cried the entire service. I mean, it was like an hour and a half, two hours long, you know, it was Easter service. And it was um, just amazing. Wow. And that Friday, you know, and it, you know, God moves when he moves. And that Friday, I, I told him, I, I, I can't, I am nothing, you are everything. And, wow. And at that, at that time, I was, what people call born again. Right. I had an encounter with God Praise all my God. own. So. Praise God. Uh, I would imagine now that you're local, you probably, I know not probably, you just met uh, uh, Bishop Earl and he does an yes. interview show. So I'm certain probably we're going to hear your whole story there, which would be great. But let me ask you this. One thing that you could share. Um, really, I just want to ask you what to share with what you think is important for Christians to know about approaching Latter-day Saints. What advice do you have for Christians in their work, besides following the Spirit, of course, with reaching Latter-day Saints? Is there something that would come to your mind? Um, absolutely. I, <clears throat> in, in experiencing coming out of Mormonism, it's a very painful experience, I mean, because it's your whole life. And there's a lot of emotions that are attached to that. I mean, there's anger and there's resentment. And sometimes that anger and resentment interferes with the relationship that you have developed with Jesus. And my advice would be, Sean, that uh, Christians who are trying to reach Mormons is it's not about Mormonism or Mormons being wrong. Mm. It's about Jesus being the truth, the way, Ooh. the life. And awesome. his grace and mercy and everything, it's for him. Yeah. It's yeah. for him and what he did on the cross for us. And that's, that's what we want to share here. We want to share that love and that experience, that supernatural experience that we experienced through just acknowledging our sinfulness, 
our brokenness that we can't save ourselves. We couldn't save ourselves. No matter how many good deeds, no matter how many ordinances or whatever, I had to go to Jesus. And I had to say, Jesus, please forgive me and save me and help me. And, uh, and that's what we want to share. It's a simple message. Uh, the gospel is the good news. It's not the condemnation news. Amen. You know? And so that's what we're here to do. It's Suzanne, not, it's not that everybody else is wrong. It's that he's right. It's yeah, he's I love right. that. He's Very right. good. Really nice. Well, so glad to see you again. Good to be Welcome here. to Utah. Thank and you, we man. look forward to seeing how God uses both of you. And we hope we can be a part of that and see as, uh, as he unfolds his will. I'll hand that to Jonathan, right. and we'll go on from there. All Thank right. you, sir. Thanks, you guys. All right. Every now and again, there is uh, a convergence of items that just, just cause a guy to laugh. And uh, Wendy J. forwarded me the following story, which is just filled with too much irony to pass by. It seems that a guy in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, was arrested on charges of wire fraud. Federal prosecutors say 52-year-old Mark Postel was arrested Sunday. Uh, so far, so good. Fine story. Things start getting funny when we hear the details. Apparently, Postel obtained a check, a refund check from a utility company that was made out to the LDS church for $183,000. grand came through the mail, and this guy gets a hold of it. So Postel gets this wild idea, and he creates a false ID, and he puts the address that was on the check to the LDS church on this ID with his name, and he poses as a, this is true, a Mormon pastor. That's, that's right, a Mormon pastor. Now, I mean, he's got a chance to get 183 grand by fraud, of course. He doesn't take the time to go online and find out what LDS people call themselves. <laughs> but he presents himself as a pastor. The story gets better. He goes to a check cashing place, and they believe him. And they deposit the check. 183 grand. He comes back later, and he takes the cash. My own bank won't let me cash an out-of-state check for 50 bucks. And this guy calls himself a Mormon pastor, and he cashes it for 183 big ones. That was in April. Recently, investigators caught on to the scheme, arrested Pastel. But the irony is, here's a picture of the master thief. <laughs> you got you got to be kidding me, man. I mean, is it me? Have I been out of the LDS church so long now that that the LDS church and their members look like everybody else these days because I could pick anyone in the world who did not look less LDS than Mr. Postel. And I'm not going to tell you my five reasons why. I'll let you figure out the five reasons why Mr. Postel did not look L like an LDS pastor. Uh, it was funny. And uh, there we go. We had some guest on Heart of the Matter not long ago who was petitioning people to go and search and research the early church fathers. Go and look at the traditions. Study them. The assumption seems to be that there is truth and safety in what people have always believed uh, over new ideas that come forth today. Rely on the history. Re rely on what has been rather than new ideas. Last week I made a plea using an ocean lifeguarding example for Christianity from, to refrain from adapting 
uh, new ways uh, for models of operation, for models of operation, because that's what godless corporations and civil services do. They do that to survive. I stand firm on this when it comes to worshiping God in the spirit and the truth. However, when it comes to the, the assessment of human doctrine, of doctrines that have been passed along, I am all for growth and adaptation if the Bible adequately supports changes. Uh, in other words, I absolutely do not believe the older ways of believing are always the best ways. And I think they should be challenged. Let me give you an example of, from history and the astronomy world as to why. If we were to apply traditionalist thinking, uh, the way we think about our solar system, we would go back and we would say, well, let's look what the early fathers of astronomy said. And we'd look at Aristotle, and he's an astronomy father. His views ought to be trusted. He was one of the first. So let's read and maintain Aristotelian uh, ideas on astronomy because he was smart and he's old and he was traditional, okay? And what did Aristotle preach concerning the solar system? His views were called geocentric, and uh, which simply means Aristotle was convinced that the sun revolved around the earth and uh, that the earth was the center of not just the solar system, but of the universe, our earth, the center of the universe. Aristotle posited this around 340 AD. Uh, about 450 years later, another guy pops up, astronomer Ptolemy. And he's a star in math and astronomy. What did he say? It was 100 AD. He said the earth is the center of the universe. And he explained why. He said, listen, if the earth was orbiting around the sun, known as the heliocentric view, the sun being the center of the solar system, he says if the earth was orbiting around that, then cows and trees and fish would get flung all over the place and trees would get uprooted. And if a guy jumped in the air, he would land, you know, dozens and dozens of feet away from where he jumped because the earth would be spinning and it's impossible. So there's no way possible that the earth revolves around the sun. And he maintained throughout the Middle Ages, the entire time, it was Ptolemy's writing and his charts that ruled the world of astronomy in the minds of men especially religious men. They said, this is the standard way in which we've always said things. Do not challenge that. And so the church endorsed the old views as being more reliable, more traditional, and even as being of God. Move with me all the way out to the 1500s and a guy named Martin Luther, religious reformer we respect and admire for many things. In his day, there was a guy named Copernicus. And Copernicus had the audacity to challenge what the faith was of the astronomical fathers. He said, Aristotle's not right. He said, you can't trust Ptolemy. Those ideas need to be revamped. Speaking of Copernicus, Luther said, quote, there is talk of a new astrologer who wants to prove that the earth moves and goes around instead of the sky, the sun, the moon, just as if somebody were moving in a carriage or ship might hold that he is sitting still and at rest while the earth and the trees walked and moved. But that is how things are nowadays. When a man wishes to be clever, he must invent something special. And the way he does it is he needs to be the best. The fool wants to turn the whole art of astronomy upside down. However, as Holy Scripture tells us, 
so did Joshua tell the sun to stand still and not the earth. John Calvin said of Copernicus and men like him, quote, they pervert the course of nature by saying the sun does not move and this it is the earth that revolves and turns. Notice a couple things about these quotes and their tenor and those who said them. First, we're expected to put our full wholehearted trust in the ideas of the, the spiritual ideas of these men who did a lot of good, who couldn't even grasp material earthly ideas. Uh, secondly, notice the attacks against those who proposed heliocentrism. Luther, he intimated that they are out to make a big name for themselves and he called them fools. And, and he said that the Bible refutes what they have to say. And Calvin referred to their views as perverted. Additionally, note that Luther misappropriates the words of Joshua. And he says, Joshua said, the sun stood still. And the way he interpreted, he said, this proves that Copernicus and anybody like him are absolutely false. Luther didn't give Joshua the chance to maybe mean something different. That when a Hebrew writer says the sun stood still, it meant shadows stopped moving. It meant that everything was still and the sun remained its place in the sky. But no, he took it literally and he said this is how it was. Now jump out to the 17th century, 1609 to be exact. There's another guy named Galileo Galilea and he was obviously Italian and an astute astronomer and he picked up on Copernicus's heliocentric ideas. And Galileo, who once considered the priesthood to be a profession of his, did so much in the world of astronomy, we can't describe it all, and some of it was wrong. So we can't just look to him either. But he was not correct when he said there's no way that the sun revolves around the earth, and the earth is the center of the solar system or universe. He said, Absolutely, the earth revolves around the sun, and he was threatened with torture, and he was threatened by who? The church. The inquisition into his heliocentric works came to the following conclusions. First, he was found vehement, quote, vehemently suspect of heresy, namely of having held the opinions that the sun lies motionless at the center of the universe and that the earth is not at the center and moves and that one may hold and defend as opinion as probable after it has been declared contrary to Holy Scripture. They use the Holy Scripture to convict him of something and they use the Holy Scripture wrongly. Not that the Holy Scripture was wrong, but their interpretation of it was. I love that line, after it has been declared contrary to Holy Scripture in, in the charge against him. It has been declared. And I laugh, who declared it contrary to the Holy Scripture? Galileo was sentenced to informal, uh, formal imprisonment at the hands of his inquisitors. And then he was commuted to house arrest, which he spent the rest of his life under until he died. And uh, Galileo was dead right. Uh, Luther was wrong. Calvin was wrong. Ptolemy was wrong. Aristotle was wrong. Uh, did history and tradition and the minds of the millions of people who supported their views for almost 2,000 years 
uh, mean anything? No, they were all wrong. And it was someone who challenged it. So you have to wonder how many other things have we collectively been wrong about? You, we have to ask ourselves those things. We cannot rest back and say, these men have done the thinking, therefore the thinking has been done. That has been said of a religion that we examine. When the brethren have spoken, the thinking has been done. No, no, no. God is constantly revealing and showing and bringing us to new ways to understand Him and see Him. And just because the Father said it was this does not mean we should sit back and say, okay. We come up with different ways of seeing things. How long are we going to allow ourselves to remain blind to alternative interpretations of eschatology, of eternal punishment, of the ontology of God, of the idiocy of sola scriptura? How long will we allow other people to be relegated uh, to being outcasts because they simply question or wonder? Why do we do this to each other? I'm not calling for the abandonment of the old views at all. Not at all. I'm simply demanding that we openly consider that people who hold new views or question or entertain different views still be accepted as Christians so long as they know that the Lord Jesus Christ came and died and resurrected and rose on the third day and sits at the right hand of the Father. All those things that we, we say that, that He is our God and King, that there's no other way to God but by and through Him, saved by uh, grace through faith, those main things. Why do we have to divide on the other stuff? And with that, how about a moment from the Word? And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. We've been going through uh, the New Testament books and we've been pulling out scriptures that uh, support or help endorse uh, subjective Christianity. And one of the principal points of subjective Christianity is that we, uh, uh, we, we don't let the minors destroy us, what I was just talking about. But we live by what the commandments are. And I only have one passage out of Philemon. It's in Philemon 1.4. It says, I thank God, making mention of thee always in my prayers, hearing of thy love and faith, which thou hast toward the Lord Jesus and toward all saints. Christian denominations talk a lot about what people need to do and follow. But Jesus here in Scripture, while admittedly, the scripture speaks to a lot of different elements. Bottom line, scripture is replete with examples that when it comes down to it, we're to have faith and we're to love each other and we're to love God. We're to have faith and we're to love each other and God. So when he says, I thank God, making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of thy love and faith, it reiterates that point. Let me sort of walk through some other passages just to show you how strongly love and faith is echoed through the New Testament. In Galatians 5, 6, it says, For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision avails anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which works by love. Faith with work by love. Galatians 5, 22, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith. Did you ever notice that doctrine is not mentioned there as the fruit of the Spirit? That knowledge is never mentioned as a fruit of the Spirit? That uh, positions of uh, 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 theology are ever mentioned? It says the fruit of the Spirit is love. 
It's joy, it's peace, it's long-suffering. Ephesians 1.15, Paul writes, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and love unto all the saints. Faith, love, faith, love. Ephesians 3.17, That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, faith, love, faith, love. Ephesians 6.23, Peace be to the brethren, and love with faith from God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.4 says, Since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and of the love which you have to all the saints. 1 Thessalonians 1.3 Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. It adds patience of hope there. But we have work of faith, labor of love. This is what it's about. 1 Thessalonians 5.8, But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. Again, faith and love. We could, I could say it all day long. We could have a show that lasts 24 hours, and all I would say is faith and love, and that would be everything that Christianity is about. Everything. If we're looking to Him in faith, and we seek to love Him and others, that's it. 1 Timothy 1.14 says, And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 1.13 Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. Titus 3.15 All that are with me salute thee. Greet them that love us in the faith. And finally, this is the coup de grace, the death blow to the whole thing. 1 John 3.23 He says plainly, and this is his commandment. And this is his commandment. This is his commandment. That we should believe on the name Jesus Christ and love one another as he gave commandment. That's it. You want to know his commandment? Believe on Jesus Christ. Love one another. We do not have to fear, worry about anything else if we're walking in that path. Isn't that amazing? His commandment, geocentric and heliocentric views are not mentioned. Eschatology is not mentioned. Faith and love. Let all who receive him as Lord and Savior receive him by faith. And let all who claim to receive him by faith, love. And with that, how about a word of prayer, which tonight will be given by our special guest prayer, Jonathan. Lord King Jesus, uh, we just come before you as true believers in your holy name. We just are so grateful to know you, Lord God, as our Lord and Savior. And we just ask that you will open the ears and the hearts and the minds of those that are lost in the world and are yet to know you fully and wholly. And Lord God, we just ask that you continue to guide us on this path in life in our trials and tribulations to give us strength and courage that we may encourage one another and to continue to fight on through our struggles knowing that you are there waiting for us with open arms. And Lord God, we give you all the glory and praise tonight and I just ask that you continue to guide each and every one of us as we always plan our ways, but you direct our steps. And I pray these things to you, Father God, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Brother Jonathan. Last week, we talked about Christian teachings that were popular in Joseph Smith's day relative to the makeup 
or what's known as the ontology of God. That's all ontology means, is the makeup of something. We said that amidst the followers of Jesus during Joseph Smith's day, there was the Trinity, there was modalism, a, a Sabellianist and standard modalism, and that there were Unitarian views. <coughs> Excuse me, we then showed how in the publication of the Book of Mormon, which in my estimation ought to be considered the true beginnings of Mormonism and not the first vision story, this, they proved that Smith himself was uncertain as to where he stood because the Book of Mormon contains Trinitarian passages and modalist passages which are of the Sabellian nature. We, what really gets interesting is that several Book of Mormon passages that speak of Jesus, if we read a Book of Mormon today, how they publish and print them today, they've been altered by the church than what Joseph Smith originally wrote in the 1830 edition. For instance, 1 Nephi 1121 and 1132 and 1340 all refer to Jesus as the Eternal Father in the 1830 edition, okay? Uh, echoing modalism, which says, the uh, Sibelianist modalism says the Father became the Son and the Son became the Holy Spirit. That's Sibelianist modalism. But the current Book of Mormon uh, books that we have today changed, to, changed it to read the Son of the very Eternal Father. Now, like their founder, the LDS maintained that the Book of Mormon is the most correct book on the face of this earth, and a person would draw closer to God by reading it than any other book. Uh, this claim is made on the presupposition that the Book of Mormon has not been subject to the major translations that the Bible has been subject to. But I would point out that while the Bible has been through many translations and there have been some discrepancies found in them even today, those discrepancies are really insignificant and they do very, very, they have very little meaning toward anything of substance. A couple dates, a few jots and tittles, a few things that way, nothing major or doctrinal. But to change an original book statement that says Jesus is the very eternal Father to he is the son of the very eternal father is akin to Bible manuscripts in the earliest states saying Mary was not a virgin and for them today to say that she was. I mean, it's that significant theologically. Speaking of Mary, by the way, the Book of Mormon calls her in the first edition, 1 Nephi eleven eighteen, the mother of God. That's what it said, but uh, that was changed later to the mother of the Son of God, keeping up with Joseph Smith's morphing, changing ideas on the ontology of God. Uh, quite frankly, the modalistic dual identity of Jesus and the Father that are found in early Mormonism are only found in early Mormonism. That was soon lost. Here's an amazing little fact. Um, some of you know that Joseph Smith believed that he could take the Bible and he could read it and by inspiration alone, not looking at manuscripts, not looking at original languages, he could retranslate what passages should say. Uh, the LDS called this the JST, the Joseph Smith translation, or it's really officially known as the inspired version. That's a good name for it because he believed he was purely inspired when he would re re retranslate passages. Well, 
In Luke 10, 22, our King James Bibles that we carry around says, All things are delivered to me of my Father. This is Jesus speaking. And no man knows who the Son is but the Father, and who the Father is but the Son, and he to whom the Son will reveal him. That's what the King James translation says. Well, still having the modalist mindset, Joseph Smith retranslated this verse to read, No man knows that the Son is the Father, and the Father is the Son, but him to whom the Son will reveal it. So this, these words reflect pure Sibelianus modalism, and, and Joseph Smith had the chutzpah to insert modalism into that verse in Luke in his retranslation of the Bible. Uh, whether an effort to support modalism or Trinitarianism was, that was popular in his day, after the publication of the Book of Mormon in 1830, Joseph Smith's focus on there being one God began to diminish down, that modalism of one God, and he began to express more differentiations between the Father and the Son. But there was one last reference in LDS writings of the one God idea. It's recorded in Doctrine and Covenants 1918 in March of 1830, and it refers to Christ as God the greatest of all. That's what it says, literally. God the greatest of all, speaking of Christ. So that was the last kind of whisper of modalism or of the oneness of God in LDS teachings. All right? By June, March, he said that in Doctrine and Covenants 19, by June of 1830, he starts getting revelations where the Father starts taking more ownership. And in this month and year, the Father acknowledges Christ as his Son, and he says in Moses 1.6, but there is no other God besides me. Okay? And from this point on, the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit are not routinely called one God anymore. They are now called the Godhead. That's how we've morphed as we've gone along through the Mormon ontology of God and his makeup. When he made that step to it becoming a Godhead, hang on to your hats. In the 1835 Lectures on Faith, Joseph Smith wrote, quote, There are two personages who constitute the great matchless governing and supreme power over all things. They are the Father and the Son. Two personages, only two, possessing both the same mind, listen, which mind is the Holy Spirit. And these three constitute the Godhead, and they are one. We are starting to really shift around now in his mind. We have to note a couple of things about that reference. First, we see that Joseph Smith has made the Father and Son personages, very Trinitarian in that word, but not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was not a person, personage or a being at that time. Nevertheless, we also see that the Holy Spirit is included by Smith into the Godhead. That's very, very unique. Finally, we see that in this little expression that Smith makes the Holy Spirit the mind of Father and Son. That was the Holy Spirit's role at this point of Smith's uh, changing ontology of God. Essentially, what Joseph Smith was uh, presenting here is called Binitarianism, um, where there are two instead of three persons 
in uh, the Godhead. I say it's a form of Benetarianism because he does include the Holy Spirit in the Godhead as the mind of Father and Son, but not as a personage, which is completely Trinitarian. So we can see he distanced himself from the Trinitarian view by not making the Holy Spirit a person, but the, instead calling him the mind of Father and Son and including them in the Godhead, which is sort of Benetarian. That being said, in Lectures on Faith 5.1, Joseph Smith is asked point blank, how many personages are in the Godhead, end quote, and his response was two, the Father and the Son. Now know this, this was, this was the founder of the LDS faith plainly stating at this time, 1835, there are two, okay? We probably can't conclude he was a strict Benetarian because he does include the Holy Spirit in the Godhead. But as pointed out by Chuck Harrell in his book, This Is My Doctrine, quote, the lectures on faith aren't Benetarian in the sense of the theological belief that there are only two persons in the Godhead instead of the three of the Trinity, thus involving the denial of the deity of the Holy Spirit. Harrell says that this is because Smith's Benetarianism acknowledges that the three constitute the Godhead, though admits only two are actually persons. In my estimation, sorry, in my view of Scripture, I have no issue at all with Smith's understanding of the Holy Spirit at this point in his thought process, as I too believe that the Holy Spirit to be God and of God, even of the Godhead, but not a person in the Trinitarian sense. And I realize that ruffles feathers. Am I going to go to hell for that belief? Will the Holy Spirit take me aside out to the shed and whip me afterward? I don't know. If he's a person, he might. But if he's not, uh, of course, Trinitarians see the Holy Spirit as an actual being or person eternally distinct in his ontology from the Father and the Son. Not necessarily a human being or person or form, but the way it's described is the Holy Spirit has a separate center of consciousness from the Father and from the Son, okay? a separate center of consciousness, which makes him a being, a person. Uh, uh. Now, many Trinitarians believe that rejection of the Holy Spirit as being a separate consciousness is heretical, uh, but uh, Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century uh, pastor, in his book, Sermons of C.H. Spurgeon of London, page 46, he admits that, quote, Trinitarians had acquired the habit of regarding the Holy Spirit as an emanation flowing from the Father and the Son, but not as actually being a person himself. So it's not a new idea. Of course, Spurgeon adamantly disagreed with this habit. He certainly believed that the Holy Spirit was a, a personage with a separate center of consciousness. Uh, uh, but that does not mean he was any more right than those who acquired the habit were wrong any more than Luther was right and Galileo was wrong. By 1841, what we might call the Nauvoo period of Mormonism, there's an increase in the distinction in Joseph Smith's mind in the makeup of the Godhead. This included the Holy Spirit now having its or his own center of consciousness, just like the Trinity. In 1841, February, Smith said, the Godhead was not, as many imagined, three heads but one body. Instead, he said, 
the three were separate bodies. The three were separate beings. He came to that conclusion. And this is the beginning of what is known as social Trinitarianism, uh, where the Godhead are three distinct individuals of one purpose, but not of one substance. Okay? Um, remember, creedal Trinitarians say that if a person messes with the substance of the one God, then they wind up with a form of tritheism. And if a person messes with the persons of the one God, they wind up as modalists. That, and they suggest that only Trinitarians have both the persons right and the substance right. The persons being three, the substance being one. I find their definitional demands limiting and an attempt to make God kind of their proprietary product. Uh, once configured and accepted, it can be foisted upon others and demanded that he is accepted in that way. In my estimation, the only difference between the LDS view, present day, the final view of the ontology of God, and the, the Christian Trinitarian view of God, is the LDS say the Father has a body of flesh and bone as tangible as man's. That's the only difference when we talk about the makeup of God between Christians and the Latter-day Saints, Trinitarian Christians and the Latter-day Saints. Uh, Trinitarians say the Father is spirit. If a Latter-day Saint said the Father is spirit and removed his physical body, the Latter-day Saints and the Christians would essentially be seeing the exact same deity uh, when the rubber meets the road. Of course, there's a lot of differences as to what came before that, those deities in the LDS view versus the Christian, but that's for another time. And that it lies the difference between the two. But again, in my estimation, Scripture read as contextually as possible. And with all due respect to the LDS mindset and the Trinitarian mindset, I find both explanations bordering very closely, in my estimation, very closely to polytheism. I can't help but see it that way. Am I wrong? Maybe. I certainly am wrong on a lot of things. But I see it bordering on polytheism. And I, I, I just don't in good conscience see how uh, we can preach one God, one God, one God, and then describe them as three separate cores of consciousness and then be able to give our allegiance to them as one and not prefer one or the other. For me, the LDS are most uh, guilty in here because they put the father in a body of flesh and bone, which is so antithetical to the biblical narrative. Uh, but when the Trinitarians claim Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all have separate beings or centers of consciousness, body or not, I'm left with the same impression, and I can't help it. For me, one God manifesting himself in words and uh, in flesh, and then manifesting himself in, spir in spirit, encourages monotheism, monotheism while admitting that Jesus was God and uh, with us, and that the Holy Spirit is God in us. And to me, I don't see how that can be so heretically uh, 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 terrible. So on that, we'll pause and we'll pick it up next week. And we're going to get into where suddenly Joseph Smith moves into a whole uh, panoply of gods and an eternal regression of gods and where this has led to. Uh, let's open up the phone lines. 801. <coughs> 5908413 uh, while the operators are clearing any calls that may come in take a minute and consider this
Oh, we have an online, uh, well, I have, well, uh, ladies, could you please keep the graphic in place so I can read it? Thank you. Uh, this is from Linda and Lyle. It says, thanks for another great show, Sean. We left Mormonism in 2010 and have gone to numerous Christian churches and have become very weary of the illogical explanations of the Trinity. Your biblical teachings make uh, much more sense. We are quite disappointed in uh, McKeever and his smug, dismissive attitude toward you. It seems too many pastors have labeled you and tried to ruin you. Thanks for continuing to preach the Word of God and not allowing the Internet haters to have the last word. Another troubling attitude we've observed about so many Christians we've met is an underlying sadness. They talk about their unsaved family members believing they will be in hell for eternity. That sure doesn't sound like the good news to us. We continue to learn from your Bible classes and appreciate the amount of time and effort you devote working and understand God's Word. And we have renewed hope in God's unfailing love and mercy. Uh, and I do too. And again, uh, I do my best and I make mistakes, but we try with the Spirit and we know God is love, and we know He reaches and calls, and we know that we can trust in Him and not be sad. Uh, this is, uh, hey Sean, this is Vincent from Atlanta. We talked two weeks ago. My question is reality. If I told you about a car that I wanted to sell and had a lot of paperwork on it, Carfax and all, I told you that I drove it for years and know everything about it, but you never saw the car, would you buy it? It sounds like that's what our evangelists sound like in a way. No one hears God audibly, sees Him physically, and this is the real challenge for someone who is intellectual because evan evangelists say we have a personal God, but He doesn't speak to us and we can't see Him. We have to believe the stories of the past. What's your take on this? I think that's a, a, a very good analogy. I think that's true, but we know from Hebrews that God says, Scripture says, it is only by faith that we can please Him. I don't know why that would be, except for the fact that what does it require of us to see His glory to then follow Him? It's, it's, and, and, and so to walk by faith somehow shows our heart that we say, listen, I am going to, I'm going to listen to the stories, I'm going to listen to the facts about you, and I'm going to discern through the Spirit and the Word whether they are real or not, and I'm going to choose to give my allegiance to these or not. And so where your Carfax story is, is similar, I don't think it's the same because we don't have the Holy Spirit testifying to our hearts, living in us, who is God in us, and validating His existence. And by the way, Scripture gives us more than just saying it's stories. Scripture tells us that God reveals Himself in the cosmos, that it's the heavens reveal Him constantly, which gives hope to the person, the aborigine out there who's never seen a Bible or a missionary, to look to the sky and say, I see you, you know, and that his, uh, his word and his law and his presence is written on conscience, that we are not tabula rasa when we come in here, but God has written himself into our conscience. And so Romans tells us that we have no excuse at that point when we're judged before God, because we know that he's there, but we have disturned from him from our conscience. Scripture says that it's written on tablets of stone. Scripture says it's written in the, uh, uh, the oracles of God. Scripture says that God's uh, presence is written on those who believe in him. Did you know that, that we are the epistles to non-believers, that Christians are written ep epistles to non-believers in the lives that they live? 
that when you are going about your day and you are sharing the light and you are a city set on a hill uh, that cannot be hid, that you are a written epistle that will bring people to say, hey, I see something. And finally, he's, uh, scripture says that God writes himself in uh, through the Holy Spirit. So I think that's uh, uh, a great um, way to see it. From Neil, it says, what do you think of 1 Corinthians chapter 15? I think 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I've thought of writing a book. In fact, there's an outline on my laptop for it. I think it is perhaps one of the single best chapters in the New Testament for a couple reasons. It is so great in teaching the Latter-day Saints. It covers about five different things that they are off on. And if someone said to a Latter-day Saint, listen, let's sit down and we can choose any chapter to read. Some would choose Romans, some would choose Ephesians, some would choose Galatians, because there's so much there about grace. I would choose 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And so Neil Gardner, thank you for that, because it's a great question. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 also gives us some understanding of end times there and what God has in store uh, from verses like 10 through uh, 25 or something. Really insightful where it says God will be all in all. Very important. Listen, we got uh, something that's uh, kind of tongue-in-cheek. Bear with me. It's tongue-in-cheek. I love the Calvinists, but this is funny. Uh, It was forwarded to me by A. Smith. Uh, written by Stephen Altruge. The title of the article is Warning Signs of Adult Onset Calvinism. The article says approximately one out of every four Christians will encounter adult onset Calvinism, commonly known as AOC, during their life. Either personally or in someone close to them, it can be a scary thing to encounter, especially if you're not familiar with the symptoms. Here are the symptoms. A sudden urge to correct everything and everyone all the time about every possible thing. A growing conviction that every worship song you've ever sung is heretical and should be excised from the church catalog, including the Nicene Creed, Doxology, and most of the Psalms. A strange and inexplicable inability to listen to 300 John Piper sermons in a single day. A burning compassion to convert everyone especially your extremely godly parents who taught you the Bible to Calvinism. A growing level of arrogance that is directly inverse to the number of blogs you post about humility. Constant cravings for cigars and microbrews, even though they make you incredibly sick. I don't know what that means. Deep suspicion of anything that might cause the slightest bit of emotion in church, especially those awful worship songs as noted above. Deep-seated cynicism toward anyone who doesn't take a hard stance on an issue, included but not limited to free will, Calvinism, sports coffee, the Trinity, capitalism, child schooling, and dating. Being so smug you begin to panic, you won't be able to adequately manifest all your smugness. An unshakable conviction that Tim Keller is theologically soft. An ability to bring every conversation full circle to Romans 9. Frustration that guys like Piper and Sprawl don't draw more lines in the sand. Growing a beard, but not in a hipster way. The beard is way different from hipster beards because it tapers to a point somewhere between the nipples, just like Calvin's beard did. He concludes, if you or someone you know begins experiencing these symptoms, go to a pastor immediately. 
It won't make the slightest bit of difference because you were predestined to be a Calvinist, but still, you should probably see a pastor. Don't worry, after five or six years, these symptoms will subside. I thought that was kind of funny. Uh, no calls. Got this email out of the blue and without any backstory from a friend in Christ. She says, there's so much going on. I believe partial preterism is huge. And that she means in a negative way. Ecumenism is what scares me for Christians, Sean. I have watched it unfold for 34 years. So has another friend that we know. We are just frustrated because you're not seeing the danger of it. Now, ecumenism says, listen, we are all one. Let's come together. Uh, we're all one body. Let's bring every, every religion in and we'll have an ecumenical view of God. Um, she continues, we have watched things unfold that you don't understand or even know about. You are being railroaded to a degree that you are not aware of. Uh, pieces of the puzzle are not coming together. We want so badly for you to listen, but you are being persuaded by sources who are part of the problem. Uh, you are so unaware of the bigger picture. I just pray God will show you the danger of not taking this ecumenism seriously. Well, listen, I just, I wrote back to her and I just said, listen, don't get me wrong at all. When I preach love, when I preach that doctrinal division is irrelevant, that doesn't mean I embrace uh, all these forms. I do not embrace Catholicism. I do not embrace Mormonism. I do not embrace oneness Pentecostalism. I don't embrace any of the isms. Calvinism, Arminianism, I do not personally embrace those systems. I don't seek to bring them together in one. I don't want anything to do with them, quite frankly. But I do fully and completely and totally embrace the Catholic, the Mormon, the Baptist, the Oneness, the Calvinist, the Arminianist, uh, because that is how we reach people. And I'm not going to divide over one of those people over these things that they ardently believe. I believe that they are responsible for what they've embraced. Will we teach the truth as we see it? Absolutely. Will we hold back because there's a Latter-day Saint sitting in the audience when we teach about God or we teach about the Bible? We do not hold back. But that does not mean I'm going to part ways with people who claim Christ as their savior. There's no way I'm going to do that. I'm going to err on the side of love for the individuals. But don't think I'm, I'm promoting ecumenism. I have no care for the current pope. I have no care for the current LDS prophet. I have no care for systems of religion. So ecumenism says, listen, we're all doing really good. We all teach the best thing. I am not suggesting that at all. But don't get that wrong about me as we, as we talk. We're getting more emails like this. And I think we'll wrap it up with this. It's from a guy named Lance. He says, I know this sounds dumb, even pointless. I want to write an apology. I found a show in 2007 through YouTube uploads and found myself very angry with your message. I was attending BYU at the time, was enraged at your arguments in the videos that were shown. I badmouthed your appearance, your approach, your message. You were the proverbial wolf in sheep's clothing for me. And I took great pride in the fact that I was defending my faith against people like you. And I would engage others who were defending you on the clips on YouTube. His name is Lance. It took me until about three years ago when I finally had a stable job and was out of BYU to finally start looking at things a bit more objectively and in depth. In reality, I began to dig down in the teachings of the church and became even more stalwart defender. 
I knew that if I had time and energy to learn the truth that I could prove you wrong. Unfortunately, and fortunately, I haven't been able to find the bottom of that rabbit hole and find myself in a theological tailspin. I am lucky to have found a good job to keep some stability above all this. I'm still a member on record, but I've stopped attending. The duplicitous actions and words of the church are a bit too much for me to handle right now. My marriage is still intact, but struggling because my wife is a true believing Mormon. Uh, I have you to thank, et cetera, et cetera. And, and the thing is, and I think this was mentioned uh, maybe by uh, Warren, but we're planting seeds. It's not, I know in the earlier shows, it was all about Mormonism being wrong. But really, through and through all that, it's really about, like, like uh, the Puckett said, it's about Jesus being right. If you're LDS and you discover Jesus being right, I am not going to talk to you about the church you attend. Uh, you will discover through the Holy Spirit what church to attend. You will discover everything through the Holy Spirit of what you should do. So we are going to preach the goodness of Jesus. We show the differences. We teach what each say. But I'm not going to go after uh, the LDS in that way anymore because I know the seeds are planted just like they were planted with uh, Lance. And I hope that uh, in the future, more and more of us can come together on some of these things and see that Jesus is Lord. Every knee and every, ba- every, tongue will con- every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Every single one. And we know from Scripture it says, no one can say Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Spirit. So we know that God is going to get people to confess uh, one way or another, and we'll see how he handles all that. We'll see you next week as we continue to talk about the ontology of God here on Heart of the Matter. Good job. I'm on a ride Going nowhere I am an existential cowboy on the And I won't be coming out, I'm going in This man's awake, a storm's arising The dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know And I can feel the 